Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with another episode, and we're talking about another John Carpenter movie, and it's a specific John Carpenter movie because it's an adaptation of Stephen King's Christine. And so, talking about Stephen King, and since I was uh, lucky enough to be invited onto a very special and awesome Stephen King podcast, Dark Tower Radio, hosted by Jeremy Lloyd, he is one of my guests tonight. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. All I gotta say is it's about time. All right, <laughs> I know this has been in the works for a while, and it's my fault that I have I have been lackadaisical in making the schedule for it. So I'll take the blame for this one. Hey, you teased one of my favorite movies of all time for me to come on and talk to you about it, and I've just been eagerly waiting for the chance to come on here. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's great to be here. I, I realize this because uh, I, I will make podcast plans, and I'm like, dude, I will do this, and I'm just like, I never say, I never say when, but I, like, like, what was it? Like, I made a video for this year. I'm like, all right, these are the movies I want to cover on my show. Luckily, I'm starting to check those boxes off because I'm, I want to make my, I want to be better at that and setting goals. And like I said, I have several guests here, and I have a returning guest, uh, Mr. Andy DiGenova. Welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. And I think there's a little confusion. I thought we were reviewing the television show The New Adventures of Old Christine. Was that starring what we're doing? the the lovely Julia Louis Dreyfus? I did the wrong homework. I just watched a, a silly sassy sitcom starring Elaine from Seinfeld for twelve hours. Well, A, I'll give you points for three alliterations in a row like that. Uh silly a sassy sitcom and i i feel bad there was kind of communication breakdown amongst us for this it's okay it was nearly as scary as the movie (laughs) i was gonna say i think we could make that work still let's just yeah it was it was all it it was weird it's actually based on the same source material so that's (laughs) yeah you know they just got really creative with it well then anyway thanks for having me back hi guys (laughs) Um, as you can tell from the title, we're talking about uh, John Carpenter's Christine. Christine, wow, as my list comes back for a moment. And so let's jump into our review of it right now. first become aware of Christine, I know you've spoken about it before on your show, so I, I apologize if you're just reiterating similar information. No, I, I, I'm i always up for talking about Christine, even if I repeat myself. So uh, uh, John Carpenter's Christine. Um, so this movie has been in my life for as long as I can remember. Uh, it was the first John Carpenter movie I ever saw. 
Uh, and that's mostly due to the fact that uh, my father introduced it to me because uh, my father's side of the family have, have always been into cars, uh, really big into car culture. Um, so anything having to do with cars, especially classic cars, my dad was always into that. And uh, this was a movie he introduced me to at a pretty young age uh, because, you know, I was born in the 80s and I used to watch whatever my dad put in front of me and some of the stuff I was probably too young for in terms of action and horror, but I think I turned out all right. Um, but yeah, I mean this this movie. Yeah. Like a, I was going to say the jury's still out of that one. <laughs> it's debatable. Not terrible. I mean, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I honestly I can't tell you the first time I saw it because it's just been in my life for so long. It's one of those movies uh that i bought numerous times um i have it on digital now so i can watch it anywhere i go um but it's it's just one that's been on regular rotation and if it's ever on you know usually amc will play it every year um i always watch it uh it's just it's one of those movies that it just has a lot of things uh that really draw me to it um one it's directed by one of my favorite directors of all time john carpenter uh, it's based on a story by my favorite author of all time, Stephen King. Um, it's got uh, the story is is about a boy and a boy in his car, you know. And I, like I said, I grew up around a car culture, so I own a classic car now as an adult. Um, so I, I very much understood a lot of the stuff in the story about you know your fascination with cars when you're a kid, you know, getting your first car and that that sense of freedom. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I really love about this movie is the music and the way the music's incorporated into the story. Um, it's just it, all around. It's just it's just a great, great film. And I, I just can't say enough good things about it. So what kind of classic car do you own? I actually own a 1969 Mustang Mach 1 Ooh. Um, that I purchased my last year of high school. Uh, my father kind of set me up with uh, one of his friends that was trying to unload it, and uh, I was able to make payments on it uh, for about a year until I was able to pay it off, and uh, I've had it ever since and dumped all kinds of money into it ever since. But, yeah, so I, I'm very big into the into the car culture, you know, the classic car culture, going to car shows, things like that. So this movie is just it's just a delight for me. Now, is it the same colors as the original Eleanor in the original Gone Sixty Seconds? <laughs> uh, no, it's it's actually uh, it's actually blue, and it has a blackout hood on it. So it's it's got a flat black hood. Uh, you know, window louvers on the back window. Spoiler: I'll have to send you some pictures sometime. I look forward to that. And Andy, your experience, your in your introduction to this movie. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that. I always kind of knew about as a kid, you know, Christine, oh yeah, the killer car movie. But I didn't watch it until much later in life because just saying that, oh, it's the killer car movie sounds ridiculous. And and so it was never something that appealed to me because I'm like, oh, I'm sure that's just dumb. Uh, and it wasn't until I realized that it was directed by John Carpenter because I'm a John Carpenter super fan that I finally tracked it down and checked it out. That probably was sometime maybe late high school, early college when I really got into Carpenter's work and I realized, Oh, he did Christine. So I sought it out just for that. I remember enjoying it when I saw it then. And then I revisited it. Well, probably 
I don't know, six or seven years ago and uh, was impressed with how well it held up. But this is not a movie that I know super well inside and out. Um, I love Carpenter, but this is not one that I've seen countless times. I've probably only seen it the twice, you know, once when I first looked at it uh, in college and then again relatively recently a few years ago and then now i guess three times because i watched it last night for this so it's not one that i i know super well so it's always kind of like watching it for the first time again um but i will say that i only know of it because of the movie i mean i knew it was based on a stephen king story but i never read the book i don't know what's different in the book i just know what exists as the movie so i'll be very curious to hear what you guys have to share about what's changed and what's different because for me i only know it uh for the movie nice and with me and my experience of it is kind of like when i became a carpenter fanatic is when after i saw the original halloween and I, and since I still frequent uh, taking movies out of my local library because I support the library system and free movies, especially Blu-rays and everything, that I'm like, hey, I want to check it out. I don't want to buy it, and it's it's cheap. It's cheaper than the renting, and so it just cost me to drive to the library. I remember when I was going through Carpenter's catalog, I came across this, and it was like, oh, it's the Killer Car movie, like you said, Andy. And I'm like, haven't I seen something like that before? And Jeremy, you may correct me if I'm wrong. Is isn't Trucks kind of a, a King adaptation, or just a, or a just a different take on that kind of same story uh, idea? Uh, trucks, <clears throat> Trucks is basically it's a short story that was in the Night Shift collection, um, <clears throat> and it was it was uh, adapted into a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which was directed by King. It came you know after this, obviously later on. Uh, but it's, it, there is some similarities that, uh, I, I, you know, I'll mention as we get into the movie, that's kind of interesting about, um, Maximum Overdrive and this film in particular. So, um, you know, other than the, you know, the idea of these inanimate objects being sentient and coming to life, um, you know, it's the, I, I would say Trucks and Christine are probably the only two, that I can think of offhand that, that have that, um, that plot point. Gotcha. Because I had heard of the, the short story of trucks and I had not seen Maximum Overdrive at that point, but I've heard about it and I may have saw oh, it. It's a great time. Oh no, I've, I've since seen it. Don't worry. I, <laughs> okay. I, I, oh no, I, I absolutely, my, one of my coworkers and I, used, we used to quote that all the time. <laughs> Especially when uh, what's her name is freaking out, screaming, "We've made you!" And she's trying to destroy uh, the cars with like the, the numerous lost rockets they have laying around to destroy oh, yeah. the trucks and the cars and everything. So, and I remember seeing this. I remember seeing this around the uh, same time as I saw um, Assaults on Precinct Thirteen, and so that's why it is kind of married with with Christine because I, I, I may have rented both of them at the same time, and I absolutely really enjoyed it, and it wasn't until later when I started collecting the movies, Carpenter's collection, on DVD, and then eventually on the Blu-ray, that, like, and I was trying to get this on Blu-ray, and there was only a limited printing at first, and it was sold out really quick, so you know, it was like 50 bucks from a third-party seller on Amazon, I was like, I enjoy the movie, but, like, I, I don't know if I would drop that much, and then eventually, it, and it was like, then you had like a cheaper one, but it was out. It was only for European region. I think it was region. It was region B, and I was like, "All right, I can't get that." Eventually, it, it, it did get a repressing, and I was able to get a Blu-ray of it. And I think that it's 
become really cheap and very available, like many of Carpenter's movies. And before we jump into the movie, and this is all about, the movie's all about your first car. Uh, Jeremy, what was your first car, and when did you first get it? Uh, so my first car was actually a 1986 uh, Honda CRX. It was one of those little two-seater hatchbacks, um, and I got it. When I turned 16, I believe, because uh, I got my attempts when I was 15 and a half, got my license at 16, and I I drove that thing for many years, uh, put more money in it than it was worth. Uh, you know, it was, you know, in the, uh, in the late 90s, so I had, you know, had the whole stereo system in it with the big bass speakers. I mean, I was into all that stuff, so... Yeah, it was it was a little little Honda CRX, a uh, little two seater, so I didn't have to haul a bunch of people around with me all the time. <laughs> yeah, I it was definitely a Chrysler LeBaron, and I want to say it was a 1988, but I can't be sure. Uh, but it was my aunt's old car. My aunt gave us her old car for me and my sister to share when I was I was 16, my sister was 17, uh, and we shared it because we were commuting uh to high school because we we both moved farther away but we finished out high school where we grew up in lockport and so we had like a half hour drive and so we shared the car there and uh had it for a little while and then got totaled in an accident um i still say it wasn't my fault but uh according to according to uh the uh According to the police, it was my fault, but it was not. Um, I was making a left turn. The guy ran the red light, T-boned me, and it was very dramatic. So so died my first car, which was very, very sad. Uh, my first car was a 1997 Dodge Neon. And then my uncle... I had one of those, too. <laughs> uh, did you have the Dodge, or did you have the Plymouth version? Dodge. Dodge okay. Neon. Yeah. Uh, and it was white, and it was, and I had I got that when I was sixteen because that's when I I got my, when my temps, and then I, I got my license later a few months later, and it was funny like the first stuff I would really drive to was like I had a radio show in my senior year of high school, so I would take the bus to school, take the bus home, and I just drive back a few hours later to go do my radio show, and I was like I just felt like big man kid. I was like yep, I'm driving out my car to. The high school and everything, I feel really cool, even over the Dodge Neon. And I poured way too much money into that thing because it died on me often and in very embarrassing ways. And I, like, since I know people know I have a little bit of a short temper, I was, it was wintertime with my mom and I were driving to the supermarket and it was really cold and my car was having trouble warming up and I got cut off in the parking lot. I got so frustrated, I, I meant just to punch the dash and just like, be like, all right, I'll be fine. My hand went through the dashboard. And I'm like, oh. And my mom was like yelling at me at the time that as soon as my hand went through the dashboard, she went dead quiet. It's like, take your time finding a spot. And I'm just like, I'm okay. Everything's going to be fine. And so I made myself a new cup holder in my dashboard, pretty much. <laughs> and so, and I felt really bad after that. But like the car died not too long after. And I've luckily been able, I've been a Hyundai guy ever since. And so the movie opens up. And we're introduced to Christine in 1957 as is being assembled. And we have George Thurgood's Bad to the Bone playing in the background. Um, and then we have Christine is the only red of all the Plymouths that are being made on this assembly line. 
and, and a worker there starts to inspect the engine, and the hood of it comes down and crushes the man's fingers. Another worker decides to get inside the car after everybody leaves, and everybody calls it a night, and he smokes a cigar. A friend of his is trying to look for him, looks in the Plymouth, finds out he's dead, and screams for help. Now, Jeremy, how do you think of this as an introduction uh, to Christine and the use of George Thorogood's Bad to the Bone? Uh, well, you know, first, you know, let me say, you know, uh, the Carpenter's Christine, <clears throat> it it very much deviates from from King's story in that, you know, Christine is is front and center as the main protagonist in John Carpenter's Christine, whereas as the book... The book is more of a ghost story in, in, in the sense that Christine is actually possessed by her former owner's spirit. Um, and I, I personally, uh, after, after reading the book, uh, because I've seen the movie long before I read the book, and uh, I personally like Carpenter's approach, especially with this opening scene, uh, establishing that you know, doing what Carpenter does, and you know, when this came out in '83, you know, he had he had previously done Halloween, The Fog, uh, Escape from New York, and The Thing. I think was right before this. Um, but you know, the whole idea of Christine just being this this embodiment of evil is just Carpenter to me. You know, we don't get any explanation in the beginning of the movie of why this car is evil, why is it possessed, why why did these two guys get one got maimed and one got killed. Like there's no explanation. And that kind of is the thread through the whole film. And I, that's one of the things I really loved about Carpenter's approach with this, because it, it just, it just makes it so much more enjoyable to me and for a movie, uh, especially when this one was made, uh, because I think if he would have approached it from what King wrote in the book, it may not have came off. It may have came off a little corny, I think uh, in 83, had he tried to do that. So I, I love the fact that we get to see right off the bat that Christine is just, it's, it's this car. There's something not right with it. And as we go through the movie, we, we don't really get any answers. And for me, that's, that's Carpenter. Leave it ambiguous, you know, make up your own mind on it. You could say she's purely and simply evil. You could say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy, yeah, I mean, even if you just back up to the opening credits, uh, you got to love John Carpenter and the chutzpah this man has to put his own name above the title when it was a Stephen King <laughs> a story. Like, only John Carpenter's like, yeah, Stephen King, I know you wrote this, but this is John Carpenter's Christine. You go sit over there. That's John Carpenter, that man. Um, he was always brilliant at branding. The fact that even... Starting with Halloween, he was like, no, it's John Carpenter's Halloween. It's not just Halloween. <laughs> um, and the fact that the choice of the music, I think, is is hysterical, and it shows that the movie has a sense of humor and, and knows what it is. Um, you know, th- th- there, there has to be a little bit of uh, self-awareness when you're making a movie about a killer car. But going, you know, going along with that, uh, I think that the premise sounds dopey as all get out, and yet... I can't speak to the book. Apparently Stephen King makes it work because he's Stephen King, but John Carpenter certainly makes it work as a movie, which man, more, more power to him because I, it's a tough order to fill trying to make a, a suspenseful, effective, scary movie about a killer car. But 
to what Jeremy was saying, that is it is pure Carpenter, and it's very much the attitude he took with Halloween, and and it is here. Whereas sometimes evil just exists, and it exists in the most everyday and seemingly innocuous of places. In Halloween, that's just suburbia. That's just your your hometown neighborhood. And here, it's in something as simple as a car. But sometimes evil is just there. I agree, and it's it's so interesting. Like one like. The cinematographer, uh, Donald Morgan, like, he used Fujifilm for this scene to make it a little more softer. So it definitely seems, even with the title card, it definitely seems to be older than what the a contemporary film looked like at the time. And with the cars, it, it definitely sets a tone for the movie. And one of my favorite moments of it, or at least one of the favorite shots that always comes to mind uh, when I think about this movie, is when uh, Carpenter shows off Christine coming down the assembly line. And there's that one shot where it's like, it's tracking along with it, but we see the guy who has his fingers made, he's just walking alongside it, and we just see him in the reflection of the mirror of Christine. Like, mm-hmm. it seems like Christine's eyeing him already mm-hmm. as as he's eyeing Christine. And it's just not, it's, and it definitely seems like there's a sense of ownership that that character has of this car, that Christine's not going to have that. Christine's going to be her own creature. And so we cut to present day, where we cut to 1978, and we are introduced to Dennis and Arnie and their kind of relationship. And the one thing I'll call out about the scene is that my favorite muscle car in, in all time makes an appearance as Dennis's car. The 1978 Dodge Charger, not the 79. I know the 79 was more popular due to Dukes of Hazard, but I prefer the grill design of the 78. And it's the same car that McQueen has to battle against in Bullet. For some reason, I've always just loved that design. And I like their relationship that they have here. Now, Jeremy, how do you feel about this scene where introduced to Arnie and his, his relationship with his mother and then the conversation that Arnie and Dennis have on the way to school? Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think it does a, a good job of setting up your two main characters. Um, we, obviously, we get the sense that, you know, Dennis is, is you know, we don't, we don't know yet. But we do find out soon later that he's he's a star football player. So, you know, in terms of popularity, you know, he's a popular guy at school. Uh, Arnie's obviously the the unpopular nerd, uh, you know. Um, so, and what I liked about it was it, it's interesting that you know that Dennis is friends with this guy. It, it makes you think that they've been friends for a long time because you know once you get to high school, sometimes people go different directions, you know, become different people. But the fact that he's still friends with Arnie tells me that they've been friends for a long, long time. And even though, you know, Dennis is a different person than Arnie, um, you know, they still, they still have a great friendship together. And it's, it's, it, this scene in particular, it shows that Dennis kind of takes him under his wing and, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's almost like a, almost like a kind of a mentor a little bit to him, you know, helping him out all the time. Um, and obviously you get, you get, uh, the sense that Arnie and his, his mother especially is kind of running his life, um, even in this opening scene. Um, so it's, it, it's, it does a good job of, uh, introducing two of the main characters, I think. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree all around on that. Is is it really does a great job of setting up? I mean, it definitely sets up both of them. But I mean, Arnie is is the heart and soul of this movie, and the whole movie rests on his shoulders. And it does a great job of introducing us to this kid. Who, uh, yeah, he's he's nerdy. He's uh, meek. He's shy. He's not confident. He feels like a loser. And like his one lifeline is is this this cool best friend who refuses to give up on him. Um, other than that, he doesn't have a lot going for him as the movie starts. And so you already are, you sympathize with him and it, it sets up a great contrast for what he's going to eventually become. And I agree. And it's so interesting because there's a few things I want to bring up with, at least with these two scenes that one, I agree, Jeremy, they were, <clears throat> So one of my closest friends, like him and I went opposite directions in high school. We since we kindled our friendship, but there was a time where um, he got a girlfriend and he disappeared. And so I didn't see him for most of the high school. Um, and I was, just, I was kind of that nerdy kid, but I still had friends in a lot of different uh, social groups in high school, including one of the kids who was, that would be considered the popular kid that him and I would have conversations with and we'd actually really cool with. It's just funny now that he's a platinum-selling artist, and so it's really weird how things happened during high school. And the conversation that <clears throat> Arnie and Dennis have on the way to school, where Dennis is saying, we got to get Arnie laid before the end of high school, and they start talking about which girls like could potentially be a lover for him. And for some reason, I'm reminded of the scene from Halloween when Annie's trying to set up Lori with a guy, as they're going, as they're on the way to a destination in a car, for some reason that came back to me. This viewing has never happened before. Well, it is kind of interesting to point out too that uh, John Carpenter actually shot this movie in the same town as he shot Halloween. Um, and another thing that's kind of interesting that ties it to Halloween is is this story supposedly takes place in 1978, uh, which is the same year that Halloween took place in. So. Mm. There's a lot of similarities. I and I was looking up some of this stuff as I I rewatched the film, uh, just to kind of get a grasp on some of the behind the scenes stuff. And I was I had always noticed that about the locations, especially Arnie's neighborhood and stuff. How it just it reminded me of Halloween. And to find out that he he shot it in the same town was kind of gratifying to know that there, there's that little connection with Halloween. I thought that was kind of cool. And it's so funny. I noticed that too. I was like, especially there were a couple scenes where um, Dennis like went over to Arnie's house and uh, just walking around the neighborhood. I'm like, God, that looks just like Haddonfield. But I, I, I couldn't tell if I was just projecting because I'm like, oh, I know it's Carpenter. I'm a big Halloween fan like you guys. And so I was just like, um, I could just, it could just be wishful thinking, but man, it looks like Haddonfield. And uh, <laughs> I didn't. And then I, I forgot to look it up because I was up late last night watching it and I just want to go to sleep. And then as we're talking, you know, I'm flipping through the IMDb trivia because, you know, it's fun to read stuff. And yeah, sure enough, South Pasadena. I'm like, awesome. So um, if only this was actually set in Haddonfield, it could have been like a shared universe. Oh, yeah. But, I, I, uh, really, I want somebody yeah. to chroma key the Smiths Grove Sanitarium sedan in the background at one point. <laughs> I'll be happy. Well, the only problem is, is they shot in the same town, but... Haddonfield is in Illinois, and this was, I forget the town's name, Smoky Joe Town or something, Uh, Smokesville, (laughs) Smoketown, something like that. It's the same town, but it's a different state, because in the book, it's in Pennsylvania, but in this, they they decided to set it in California. Yeah. Yeah, so it's in California, so... 
Oh well, but yeah, it's a cool connection and great <laughs> great observation about like the the conversation in the car trying to trying to set up the nerdy one. Um, just things don't work out as well for Arnie as they do for Laurie Strode. Yeah, I, I mean Spo- spoilers, guys. <laughs> <laughs> God, you jumped to the end already. Jeez. I just call me Jamie Drooley. I was yeah. gonna say, who's gonna make the joke? Um, uh, I, I do feel, I do feel happy about myself. Whenever we do, please rewind. We stick pretty linear, linearly. We don't usually jump to the ending, so I, I like to take credit for that. Um, and so when they get to high school, we're introduced to uh, Lee, played by Alexandra Paul, and then we're introduced to Buddy Repton, or Buddy Repton, I should say, and hit. The Jim Morrison lookalike guy in the movie, <laughs> and in his gang of uh, no good, uh, no good people, and so bunch of hooligans, bunch of jerks, <laughs> cause shenanigans, and and they're just spreading malarkey all over the place. Um, and how do you bet? And Jeremy, how do you feel about these introduction scenes between people that bring so much joy and um, harm to Arnie in this movie? Well, the actress that plays Lee, every time I watch this movie, I try to remember what other things I've seen her in, because for whatever reason, she always looks like an actress that I should know. But I and I forgot to look her up before we started recording, because I'm like, God, every time I see her, I, I swear I've seen her in a bunch of films, but I don't really know if if she's been in a lot. But for some reason, she's got one of those faces that I, I feel like I should recognize. Maybe you've uh, just watched this film too many times. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe because that's why I always... <laughs> I, I had the same thing with Moochie. Is I was like, God, I, he's, he's, it's, oh, it's Moochie. It's like the chubby actor from the 80s who's not Francis from Pee Wee. <laughs> and he's not Stephen First from Animal House. He's the other one. It's and I looked him up and I could <laughs> Yeah, I, was, I looked him up and I was like, surely he must have been in something else. But I'm like, no, it must just be from Christine. And then he's continued to work, so I recognize him as, as an adult. But I swore when I first saw him that he must have been in other 80s stuff. Yeah, I was trying to – I was I was just looking her up and there's nothing that's standing out to me that's like, oh, yeah, that's the movie. Oh, Spy Hard? Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen? Come on. That's the one. one. Right. Sharknado 4? Obviously. I mean, (laughs) this is good stuff. The Boy She Met Online. Everyone knows that movie. Hey, Radio Um, Flyer. That's a a good one. I saw that one. No, I, I, but I agree with you. She does have, like, she's super familiar. And I'm trying, and now you got me wondering where the heck from. <laughs> I mean, she just oh, Melrose Place. See, I did watch Melrose Place, so maybe that's oh, where. Oh yeah, there from. you go. I watched that. She reminds um, me of Jennifer from like maybe it's just her hair oh, from from back. She was on, she was on Baywatch for five years. Wow. I didn't watch Baywatch, yeah. but, but but that could be you know. Yeah. Somewhere, a guy milks right now is, is when he hears this, he's going to be like, "Come on, guys." <laughs> Yeah, well. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, the lead character in the book and in the movie is a, is an important character. Um, I I feel like she's a little bit underserved in the movie version compared Agreed. to the book. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't even I don't even know compared to the book, but she like 
she doesn't get a lot to do. And we're yeah. to the point where at the end when she she's kind of involved, I'm like, why are you even here, Lee? Like <laughs> she doesn't like she kind of comes in and out of the story multiple times where when she pops back up, I'm like, oh, is she still a thing? Are we still are we still worried about her? I mean, what she's given to do, she does a really good job with it, uh, but she doesn't really get a whole lot to do. Um, she has a couple really uh, obviously iconic moments in the movie, but um, it's not the actress's fault. I just feel no. like, yeah. Um, in terms of Buddy and his gang, I mean, this is this is just you know another example of you know King knows how to write bullies, man. I mean, you know, you got if if you're you've seen Carrie, uh, Stand by Me, um, obviously now with it. Um, you know, I, I've read all those stories, so I know I know all the the written word with it. But even the movie versions, I mean, those are all examples of you know, King has a way of of showing the worst kind of bullies in the world, and uh, you know the experiences that we've that we have with bullies and how that feels, and um, you know this the opening scene with where we first get to meet Buddy and his and his goons. I mean. It's a it's it's an un, un unsettling moment, you know, when he's taunting Arnie with the knife, and you know, it's just, you know, some might say it's overboard, but it, it, it is kind of a scary thing. I mean, anybody that's had to deal with bullies, I mean, it's it's a very uh, tense tense situation, and you know, I think Carpenter did a really good job uh, showing that these guys are these aren't your typical bullies. I mean, these guys are. You know, they, they, they seem like they really want to hurt Arnie and they wouldn't be afraid to. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I kind of hinted at it before, but what I loved about the bullies is, is his little crew of bullies. I was like, oh my God, that's the guy from Ghostbusters. That's, (laughs) that's the guy who's not Francis from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Like, I love just like these recognizable faces from the eighties, but you're right. Like as soon as he pulls out the knife, it's like a different level of bully. So that's Mm -hmm. when, that's when you're like, man, I, I really hope they get run over by a red car at some point because, (laughs) cause F these guys. I, I mean, it's so funny. Like I was looking at the the dude with the weird hair. I'm like, why do I recognize him? And you point out he's in Ghostbusters. He's the one to get zapped by uh, Bankman in the, yeah. the movie. I, I wow, revelation right there for me. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry, why? Like, okay, Lee, she's lovely. I'm sure she's a very nice person. But like, no interest in Kelly Preston, Dennis. Really? Like none. <laughs> he prefers Brunettes. I, I, I don't sh- know. I was shocked that that was Kelly Preston, but I was like, oh my god. She looks like Kelly Preston, but she's not in Christine. And I looked it up, and sure enough, she was. But yeah, like, come on, you got Roseanne right there. Why are you going after Lee? I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, and with Buddy and his gang, I mean, like, all right, I, I had like one bully in high school, and we always got into a fight, but it was never nothing to this extreme. Nobody pulled the switchblade out on me. And I do like the scene where they, where Dennis comes to his aid, but I always found. Always found it odd. Moochie just grabs a handful of like Dennis's junk to like incapacitate him. And I'm like, I'm like, all right, I guess that's your power move, but uh, it's just a really strange way of going. Like maybe punching him, like kicking him, but just a just a fistful. I'm like, all right, guy, I'll go with that. And then Buddy gets kicked out of school, and uh, the other two uh, got a uh, suspension. Suspension. And then they're go- they're Dennis is taking Arnie home. That's when he finally gets to see Christine. T- and today, it's all beaten up, and we're introduced to 
uh, George LeBay, not uh, and not Roland LeBay, and then we we find out that Arnie's immediately infatuated with Christine, despite Dennis's outcries and buys her right on the spot. Brings her home. Can't bring. You can't keep it here, says his parents, and you have to park it elsewhere. Uh, your feelings in these two moments, uh, Jeremy. Uh, <clears throat> well, first, I did want to back up for a second because I've, after I've seen this movie so many times, I've always still never figured out what the hell Arnie had in his lunch bag. Yogurt. <laughs> she says was it, it at the beginning. She it says it at the beginning. It was yogurt. Yeah. She goes. Right. She goes. Make sure you refrigerate it. There's yogurt in there. That's a lot of yogurt. That was a big container of it was, yogurt. It was. It was the, the jumbo size. He <laughs> needs to stay regular. <laughs> he has digestive issues. Uh, I, I have wondered how many times they had to do that take, like for him to get the knife into the yogurt container to make it spill like that the way it does, because it, oh, it just makes me squirm every time I see it. Just so gross. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was like, I was like, man, like, what an extreme thing! I'm like, well, that's why they made her say early on, "There's yogurt in there," so that way they could have that gross, ruin the lunch moment. I'm kind of like Arnie. I kind of t- tune out his mom most of the time when she's Aww. rambling. <laughs> um, that's so, Rose's yeah. daughter from the Golden Girls. Is it really? She played Rose's daughter. Wow, I did yeah. not know. That makes sense. Or you know, yeah, she was another eighties staple. She was. This is this movie is full of eighties staples, and she's one where you look it up and you're like, oh yeah, she was just all over the TV in the eighties. This is like <clears throat> Revelation Theater tonight here. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, uh, the, you know, the first scene when we're reintroduced to Christine after her, you know, you know, this is nineteen seventy eight. Uh, we you know got to see her in fifty seven on the assembly line. She's she's definitely. Uh, She's definitely got some wear and tear on her sitting in that field. And uh, it's kind of funny because living out here in Ohio, uh, I can't tell you how many times driving the back roads around here that I've I've seen ex- this exact type scene before, you know, where this old, decrepit, classic car is just sitting in a field rusting, you know, because somebody owns it and doesn't want to sell it, you know, because they, they think are think they're going to fix it up one day, but they don't have the money to because they live in a shack like LeBay does, you know, so you're like, mm. you're never going to fix that up. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, let me just point out, you know, the actor that plays LeBay, um, you know, other than this, I remember him from Home Alone as the uh, as yeah. the, the salt guy out on the street, the creepy guy. That's right. The shovel killer. Or yeah. Whatever. Yeah. And he's just—he's. I don't. I don't know if he's just a um, a big character actor, but he is—he's great. He just chews the scenery up, you know. Especially in this movie, every scene he's in. Um, and it's interesting that they took uh, in the book um, the Roland LeBay character. His brother is actually more what this character looks like in the movie, and it's like Carpenter or whoever wrote the screenplay. Um, combined the two characters together, so you would still have this creepy, creepy guy, you know that that Arnie buys the car off of. Whereas in the book, he's actually buying it, um, you know, off of off of Roland uh, LeBay, his brother, and um, George LeBay in the book is is more of a uh, stable person that we meet later on in the book that Dennis, 
reaches out to to learn more about Christine and all that stuff. Um, but you know, I think I think the actor's name uh, looking up right now, Robert Scott Blossom. Um, he's just he's he's just great. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to imitate his delivery of you know where he says shitter. Yeah, yeah, it's like that's I always hear his voice in my head every time I hear that hear that phrase. So, um, you know, and this this scene, it's really great because it it shows, you know, um, at least from personal experience, you know, what it's like to to fall in love with a car for the first time, you know, or, you know, get behind the wheel of a car and, you know, have that instant attraction to it. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the heart of the story is, you know, that, that feeling of falling in love with your car, the first car, you know, and just that, that it's just, it's just one of those things that most people go through, you know, at that, at that point in their lives. And I think that this scene does a really good job of, of showing, you know, Arnie, you know, he's he's rubbing Christine down. He's talking about, you know, oh, she could she could really be something, you know, if she was fixed up. You know, it's it's just really great. Uh, it captures the moment perfectly of, of what they were trying to convey. And that is, you know, that that feeling of, you know, getting your first car, you know, and how nobody's going to stand in your way once you've decided that you want that car, you know. Well, and I think it also just shows like just this. Uh, the, the power that Christine already has over the right kind of person where there is nothing that they were going to say that was going to dissuade Arnie from buying her at that point. And the fact that he was even going to pay the more money, the $300, even though LeBay said he'd give him it for 250 like that's how, how he is instantly entranced by that car. Um, so, yeah, it shows that just like already it sucked him right in and it's not going to let him go. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny because when I saw this time and how what George LeBlade wears, like the weird um, vest that he wears, and it's actually explained in the book that Roland had back problems and back problems due to Christine that also the same kind of affliction happens to Arnie and he wears Mm -hmm. that to kind of straighten himself out. I I always question, like, why is he wearing that? I always thought it was an odd costume choice. And... Yeah, it is something that if you've never read the book, I remember, you know, watching this before I read the book, like, what the hell is he wearing? I don't <laughs> like it's he, it's weird. He escaped from a mental hospital or something. It's like what's left over of a straight jacket. Like, I didn't know what was yeah. going on with that. I just assumed it was some sort of back brace. You know, he's old. He's decrepit. He's seen better days. I figured it, it was something to help him with his back. It's certainly weird, but yeah, I, I mean, was willing to go with it. How he's looking otherwise, I wouldn't be surprised this man said, like, he escaped from mental hospital. Like, yeah, no, no, that that's, <laughs> that makes sense. And it's funny that you're saying, like, how he enunciates shitter, because that's exactly how I heard it in my head every time it, that phrase was said in the book. <laughs> I just hear his voice, and I'm just, like, in his inflections of it. And, yeah, George LeBay is kind of, like, the more steady person and kind of guiltful of what happened with Christine and to uh, Roland's family. And... Mm-hmm. Is then like I, I did the inflation calendar just to see how much expensive that car would be. It's close to a thousand dollars today. That's what he was paying for that car. That's twenty years old. Something in that condition for a twenty-year-old car. I think that I think that's that's a bit much for something in that condition. Is <laughs> despite the fact that it's an antique. As Arnie says it, and he says like it's it's and he's that Christine has that allure over him already. 
and then he like he's he's touching her like very gingerly, and he's, he's being it's already the sensuality is already being exuded from Artie onto Christine at that point becomes more and more apparent as it goes on, and his parents uh, say no, you can't have it here. And this is the first act of defiance that he has against his parents to say, fine. And he takes it to Will Darnell's. And Will Darnell played by Robert Prowski. And I feel like Prowski's got like, the spinning image of how I saw Darnell in the book. Oh, Prowski is Prowski's amazing in this. Um, you know, I always, I always remember him from, um, uh, what was the... Um, Last Action uh, Heroes? Yeah, Last Action Hero. I mean, he's he's got he's got so many great movies that he was in. I mean, I, I uh, was what was the one I was thinking? Of? Oh, The Great Outdoors. You oh. know, I remember him fondly from The Great Outdoors. Um, and he he's just he's great. He's another great just character actor. And uh, I'm with you, uh, Tim. Uh, it, it, he's just he's just the perfect image for Darnell, and he's got so many great one-liners in this in this movie, um, just so so quotable. Um, and you know, you, I love like you know the parts in the movie where he's he puts his guard down a little bit, you know, to show a little compassion, and then for whatever reason, Arnie always says the wrong thing, and he just switches right back to the asshole. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love the Darnell character, um, and I, I, I really think that, uh, especially in the in the film version, I think it, his character's done a lot more justice. Uh, he has a much better death scene, I think, in the in the book than he does in the movie, uh, because he is he is attacked at his home by Christine, and she literally drives through his house and runs him over several times until there's literally nothing left of him. But um, that's kind of jumping ahead. But spoilers, he does die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's I, not a shot. Yeah, I lo- I love the Darnell's Garage, all the all the stuff with Darnell's Garage, which is is kind of a centerpiece for the film. I mean, uh, most of the movie takes place at Darnell's Garage. So, yeah, and he he is so good. I mean, he uh, I always think of Gremlins too with uh, oh yeah with him because yeah. he's the uh, oh. the horror host. Yes. Yeah, the vampire Uncle, Dracula. Uncle Fred or whatever. Yeah, he's he's so great. And in this, he's so damn uh, vulgar and just rough around the edges. But he makes such an impression. And, you know, this is someone who takes this supporting role and just has a blast with it. You can tell he's just... He's just completely running with it, and I think he's great. Um, and you're right; like some of the lines that he says, he just he sinks his teeth into it. So he's so memorable. And it's funny, like you're saying, like he's trying to be sincere and genuine towards Arnie, and Arnie always says the wrong thing. And I always love it. Like it's like if you do big shit up around here and put the little dispensers on the toilet paper thing, you raid whatever I want out or raid whatever you want out of my piles. All right, I'll think about it. Oh, don't think about too long. I throw it on your fucking ass. He storms away. <laughs> yeah. being as gross as ever, and just like I, I, my skin crawls. I'm just like, dude, do you shower? I mean, I, I can smell the cigars and cigarettes off of him. Just watching this, and and it's I totally forgot he is in Gremlins too, and as well as there's something else that he was really. Oh, I forgot he's. 
he's uh, Robin Williams' boss in Mrs. Doubtfire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scotch drinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But yeah, like the the moment when he when he does offer the part-time job to Arnie, you're like, "Oh, I'll look the softer side." And Arnie, I mean, Arnie's kind of a jackass for going, "I'll think about it." Like, what do you got to think about? Come on. Um, so he kind of deserves what he gets at that point. But yeah, just his the 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 way he completely switches back is hysterical. Well, and I think it's also important to mention too that we get the sense that Darnell has seen Christine before because he mentions her previous owner. Uh, when Arnie shows up with her in the garage, he's talking to Dennis and he says, you know, oh, I knew a guy that owned a car like that one time. You know, he was one mean, you know, SOB. What he say? You could pour boiling water down his throat and he'd piss ice cubes, I think is what yeah. he says. Yeah, <laughs> so, so descriptive. <laughs> um, so that was that was something I really picked up on this time when I rewatched it today was, um, you know, that that Darnell has seen Christine before. He did, he doesn't realize it's the same car, but it's the same car. Right, yeah. Little do we know that Darnell does slam poetry on the weekends, and he's just very descriptive <laughs> like that. It's, 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 it's a passion of his. Yeah. Um, and that was in the book, right, that he knew Christine beforehand, right? I'm, I'm not misremembering that, right? Uh, no, he, yeah, he, he was actually... I don't want to say he was friends with Roland LeBay, but he was acquaintance, you know, of him. He he knew of him, and I want to say that he had he had done stuff at Darnell's garage before, because um, there's a lot of backstory with Roland LeBay, and I believe it has a lot to do with Darnell's garage. So, yeah, he he did he did know the previous owner in the book as well. Okay, I was trying to remember that, and I mean, like one of the the something that you mentioned before, Andy, like how this premise can really be sold i think it's the reason why the reader of the book will buy this because there's so much minutia going into the setup of everything that it's like the first part of the book is like a journal entry of just it's dennis's point of view telling us what exactly has happened step by step like there's i think a chapter or two of just getting the car from roland to darnell's and all the shenanigans that go through of this car is can barely function. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 classic King. I mean, people wonder why his books are so big. Uh, he is he is the king at character development. I mean, he just and you probably know this, Tim, from reading some of his stuff. I mean, he will dive into a character for pages, you know. And you, if you're reading it, you're thinking, why are we talking about this character so much? And it, it's always it always pays off in the end. Uh, he's, he just, he's very good at, he's very good at painting the picture of scenes and, and developing characters, uh, with his books. And it's something I, I really respect about him as an author. I mean, like even with Lee, it gets, she gets a lot more development in the book and mm-hmm. even in this movie where like, um, Dennis goes to try and ask around and he, he, he gets shot down in a nice way. Lee lets him down nice. It's like, no, I already have a date. And despite the prodding of Dennis's friends, like, oh, no, you should try again. Like, no, 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 she's got a date. I'm not going to I'm going to let it uh, slide. And we have Dennis go to um, George to talk more about the history of Christine, that how that uh, Roland's daughter died in, and Roland did not care, and he just kept driving around listening to rock and roll. And then we have Dennis gets hurt uh, playing football, as Christine comes to the football game, Christine and 
Lee's dating Arnie, it seems. It does it, seem that way. I, I mean, they're just straight up making out in the middle of the football game. Um, I do think it's interesting that, that how they kind of glaze over how Arnie managed to snag her. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, we never really see the moves that it took where everyone else got rejected, but somehow Arnie got the date. Yeah. This is, this is one part of the movie that I seen. It seems like it's rushed a little bit where, especially when uh, Dennis goes over to Arnie's and um, you know, Arnie's not wearing glasses anymore. He's, you know, He's in different clothing in terms of, you know, what he's used to wearing. And he just kind of has this different demeanor about him. It seems like the transformation from from Arnie dropping the car off at Darnell's to, you know, to this moment is it seems like a pretty big 180 switch. Um, That's not to say it's anything against the actor. I just think it was the way the script was written. I think they I think they glossed over a little bit too much and they, they rushed that transformation. Um, but I did, I did want to mention, you were talking about Tim, the, the scene where Dennis goes back to LeBay. Um, I, I love this scene. I, I, I think, uh, Robert's blossom. He is just like a game in that scene. I, I love how he's describing, you know, that his, that his brother's daughter, you know, died in the car and, you know, then his, his, his sister-in-law, you know, killed herself in the car and you know he had to step in you know to make his brother get rid of the car and there's there's that creepy line of him saying you know he made him get rid of the car and then of course the car came back three weeks later and then dennis kind of looks at him like oh it came back and he just kind of gives him that look and you know you get that obviously the carpenter score is going in the background it's just very unsettling and creepy uh i i just love that scene well, and to go back to what you're saying, I mean, I agree with you, but to go back to what you're saying just about how we um, just how the story is structured and how we, you know, we see him dropping off the car and then we kind of flash forward a, a little bit and check in on everyone. That was something I had forgotten about the movie is that in order to show that progression of Artie's character, we keep jumping forward kind of a month at a time ish. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it varies, but about that. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was one of those jumps where it's like, oh, it's nerdy Arnie. And then we jump forward a few weeks and now he's dating Lee. And you're like, oh, OK, well, they got together somewhere in all the stuff we missed. And it was just it, it's an interesting way of structuring it to show how far Arnie ends up going um, while Dennis is kind of laid up and can't can't be there for him, can't help guide him, can't try to, you know, help him. Um, and so how he kind of loses Arnie while he's laid up. But yeah, those time jumps were something that uh, were, it was an interesting way to to structure it and tell the story. Well, and it is interesting, too. I don't know how you guys took it. Uh, one of the things I've always been puzzled by was was Christine responsible for Dennis being hurt or was he just, you know, entranced by the fact that Arnie was kissing Lee, you know, in terms of the, the music and the score in the background lead, lends you to believe that it was Christine, but I, I've always kind of battled with that. Yeah. I took it as just that he was distracted. I didn't think that, to me, I thought he was so separated from Christine that at that point, Christine doesn't have any power over him. I just think that mm-hmm. he was distracted by what he saw. But that was just the way I took it. 
I mean, like, like Carpenter in so many ways, it's ambiguous enough that you could make an argument for either case. Um, but also, like, the, like the most beautiful girl in school is making out with your best friend, and in front of like the probably one of the most gorgeous car in the parking lot. Yeah, I can understand while not being uh, distracted enough to being taken out like that. And it pretty much, it does end his football career, at least the book-wise. It says, like, yeah, mm-hmm. he'll never get a chance to play again. And, like, mm-hmm. he'll have to walk with a cane. And, like, it's, and, like, how, or, or at least he was recovered with. And his wounds later on in the book kind of prevent him from being 100% ever again. Mm-hmm. And it's weird that you mentioned that it's the score because this track on the soundtrack, I think it's called um, uh, "Football Run Slash Kill Your Kids," and because <laughs> it, because it plays into the scene when they're at the hospital. But this, mm-hmm. the, the part "Football Run" is you, there's I forget what the name of the track is, but it's this is very similar to a piece of music that Carpenter made for Halloween Three. Mm-hmm. And I remember because I, I just had I just put my Carpenter. Um, playlist kind of just on shuffle and i thought the song played twice and i'm like wait that's the song played twice i look at my ipod I'm like oh no it's two different songs but they're very similar to each other i forget which track it is i have to look it up and i know it's gonna wake me up in the middle of the night when i finally remember um and so well, I, do, I i do uh i i think we we kind of skipped over it but it, it's kind of a small scene so i mean it's it's easy to gloss over it but uh the scene where dennis uh, sneaks into Darnell's uh, to get a look at Christine, and and she starts playing the uh, "Keep a Knocking But You Can't Come In" song. Um, I, I I love that. <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel, but I I, I love the whole fifties, early sixties rock and roll music as Christine's voice. Um, you know, which is in the book, but I think Carpenter does a phenomenal job bringing that to life. And that's one of the huge things I like about the movie is that that the rock and roll music is 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 what gives Christine, you know, character in terms of, you know, how she communicates. Uh, I, I, I just love it. And that scene especially is one of the big ones that I, I just love that scene. No, I agree with that. I love I love the use of the uh, the radio throughout. Again, it's that it's that twisted sense of humor that uh, Carpenter has a lot of fun with throughout. Mm hmm. And I love, like, the song choice of Keep a Knock, and it's, it's obviously when Dennis is snooping around, and it's obviously, it spooks him, A, that the radio would come on all, and B, it's a very poignant song to use, they're like, yeah, I've run out of Darnell's as, as quickly as I can, too. And, <laughs> I mean, it seems like this, and then, like, video games like Fallout, be able to take, like, songs from period uh, decades past and make them kind of relevant again and kind of twist them in a different way and kind of juxtapose them to mm-hmm. the kind of tone that the song was originally made for and then with images and emotions that it's being presented for in this new medium, it does add a new kind of creepiness to it. Like, at Keep It Knock, it's a Little Richard song. It's I always think of Little Richard from two movies. It's definitely from this and then Long Tong Sally uh, from Predator. So, oh, definitely, yeah. And so I always think of Little Richard when it comes to those two movies. And so afterwards, we another big plot point is that Buddy and his uh, friends, that after noticing that Christine is built and Arnie's driving around with her, decide to sneak into Darnell's and 
destroyer. And this is hard for me to watch. Just like, I'm, I'm not the biggest car person, but I know when a beautiful piece of art is being destroyed in front of me, and that's just, it's really uncomfortable for me to watch. The guy defecates on his dashboard. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree. This is one of those scenes that's hard to watch. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, I, I have I have a classic car that, you know, I'm not as obsessive as Arnie. I'm not driving around yelling shitters at night as I'm driving it. But, you know, <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is it is a possession of mine that I, I do care about very dearly. Early and you know, especially with cars like that, you know, guys put in tons of hours of work, um, you know, getting them to that condition, and to see something like that happen is just heartbreaking. And you know, especially the scene where Arnie and Lee comes back and he's just completely devastated. Um, it's it's always funny when I rewatch this movie because my wife's always like. If you're ever like that towards me because something happened to your car, I'm going to, like, leave you. <laughs> I'm like, well, I would never go that extreme, but you may want to give me a minute and not touch me. Because <laughs> <laughs> it would not be a good day. But, yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is pretty hard to watch. It's, it's crazy to think that, um, you know, when I was reading up on IMDb, and I actually watched some YouTube stuff with Carpenter and the cast, uh, some behind the scenes stuff. It was interesting to know that they had, I believe like 18 cars for this movie and like certain cars had certain jobs for the movie. You know, there was cars that were just supposed to be to look pretty for certain shots. And then there was cars that were meant for the driving scenes. And then there was cars for the, this scene right here where it was meant to be destroyed. So it's it's pretty crazy to think about that they actually you know this is pre CGI people so this is something they actually did uh, and it's that makes it even harder to watch as a car guy so yeah I had to like there were numerous times as I was watching just different things that the cars did I mean I didn't look up the number but I was like man they had to have gone through so many cars to make <laughs> this movie um, or. They just got the real Christine who then fixed herself <laughs> after every shot, which is very possible. We don't know. Um, but yeah, watching, watching these guys just trash Christine. It is tough to watch. I'm not, you know, I'm not a car guy. I mean, I like my car, but you know, like that's not how I spend my free time. I spend my free time <laughs> talking to nerds like you about nerdy stuff like this. Um, but still like, you know, like you can tell it's this immaculately restored thing. And just to see how hard they go after it, Oh, and and I, I again my my recollection was fuzzy, so I cu- I couldn't remember if they completely got away with it or not. Um, at least in the moment, I was like, oh, like I can't remember if Christine defends herself or what happens. But no, they just they just completely destroy the thing, and then Arnie has to find her that way. So yeah, it's brutal. Again, which doesn't make me super sad when they get what's coming to them. <laughs> no. And it's one thing in the book we do not see what happens to it. We see the results of mm-hmm. it in the book. Like, we hear, like, the person, because in the book, um, he can't afford to keep that Darnell, so he's, he ha- and can't have it at his parents' house, so he has it in, like, a parking garage miles away, he has to take a bus to go get it. And mm-hmm. he, him and Lee drop off the car, and they leave, and the night watchman is a friend of Buddy's who let them in, and we just we stay on the the friend at the security guard as we hear what's going on and the laughter and the cackling, mm. and they come back and they're, like they're covered in sweat and they, they they peel out of there 
and the buddy, the friend just kind of regrets what he does at that moment. Like, oh, I think they've gone a little too far. And then we, as the audience in the book, find out just like how Arnie and Lee does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Carpenter, I think the Carpenter version is much better. I, I never liked the whole Arnie keeping it parked at a, I believe it's like an airport parking lot that his dad pays for. Yeah. Uh, which is like his dad's way of trying to like, you know, build a bridge, you know, to be like, you know, you can't keep it here, but guess what? I'm going to pay for you to keep it somewhere, you know, where it is parked and safe. Uh, but I, I, I think the Carpenter version works much better. And then the fact that we actually get to see the car get destroyed, uh, is, is much more powerful. Well, and like having a third place where the car is kept just seems like an extra level of complication. That's not necessary. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's no reason that buddy and his buddies couldn't just get into Darnell's at some point, which is what they do in the movie. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, kudos to Carpenter for just streamlining that and simplifying it, because otherwise, like, that just feels like wasted time. Mm-hmm. I guess that's the, the, the certain luxury of a book versus a movie, and so you'd have that oh, kind Oh, definitely, of, yeah. Um, and I also, we skipped over the scene, I, I, my apologies, that, that Lee and Arnie have a day at the movie theater, or drive-in theater, I should say, where Lee feels uncomfortable because they're making out as it's, it's raining as they're they're not really watching but they're there to make out and Christine is getting very jealous and seems to be like stalling when, and whenever they're being really affectionate and Lee calls Arnie out for it like I feel very uncomfortable being around this car Arnie brushes it off like I thought girls were supposed to be jealous of all the girls not cars and Arnie has to get out of the car because the windshield wiper stopped working the car locks itself. And Lee is eating a burger at the time and starts choking because she is startled by the car. Seems to be coming alive and there's so much bright light coming at her. And eventually a person in a neighboring car has uh, yanks the door open and gives the Heimlich maneuver and able to save her life. And I find the scene to be really terrifying. I don't know about you two. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, kudos to Carpenter because I like this scene a lot better, uh, in the movie than I do in the book. Uh, I've heard some other people disagree with that, but, um, you know, in the book, it's, it's a guy that they pick up on their way, on their way back, like a hitchhiker. Um, and I believe Arnie gets out of the car to, at a gas station or something. And, and that's when it happens. But, um, you know the the version in the movie is it, it is it's a great it's a great um, scene, uh, and again the music that Christine plays uh, it's it every song choice for these moments are just just perfect for each scene, um, and I, I I love the the whole thing with the the inside of the car glowing so it's you know. It's almost like, um, uh, you know, keeping people from the outside from actually seeing what's going on in the car, I guess. Um, it, it It is a great scene, and I, I did want to point out, you know, there's probably five people listening to this that knew, know what a drive-in theater is, but... Um, <laughs> it was a thing. We still have one in thing. California. We still have one here in Ohio. I think, Lucky. I think it's one of maybe five in the country, but... Exactly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I, I love the scene. Uh, another cool little thing that I, I noticed over the years watching it, um, you know, this is just kind of a nerd thing. Uh, the guy that pulls Lee out and gives her the Heimlich, 
if you notice the sweater that he's wearing, it's it's very familiar if you're a fan of the Big Lebowski because it's the same type of sweater that Jeff Bridges' character, the dude, is wearing in the Big Lebowski. So that's kind of a little Easter oh, egg, little nod. I wouldn't say it's a nod since the Big Lebowski came years and years after, but it was kind of a cool little thing to notice. Like, ah, that must have been a, a, a fashion statement back in the 80s, I guess. I don't know. Mm, interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> you know, we've got Lee in the car choking to death, much like in Halloween when Annie gets choked out in the car. Oh. So another Halloween connection. I just thought of as we were talking about this moment. But this this is the this is like the Christine attack that's a little odd to me because it like gives Christine a different power. Mm-hmm. Like aside from this, Christine can just do what a car does, but here it seems like she somehow had the power to to make Lee choke. Mhm. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I mean, when you put it like that, it is one of those situations where, and I mean, and that's why I pointed out the whole thing with Dennis earlier because, again, we don't we don't know the extent of Christine and her powers and mm-hmm. you know her evil ways. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it is one of those things. You know, how did she cause Lee to start choking, or you know, was that the cause, or you know, was it the bright light in there that? distractedly that freaked her out maybe and she you know the radio started playing and she just kind of got freaked out and started choking you know we're never again we're never told so (laughs) i mean go on eddie i was gonna say the other thing that i was gonna mention was that um as i was watching this i noticed that carpenter really takes his time building up to christine becoming deadly Mm -hmm. uh he really takes the time to build the characters, to build the situation, to introduce all the supporting characters, to see Arnie start to evolve and change and everything. But there was no rush to get to the first attack. And I don't think this – no, it wasn't this. This was like the first attack, um, I guess. But it's you know it's over pretty quickly and, and she's okay. But I think the first real attack is after they trash Christine, and that's mm-hmm. right around the hour mark. And mm-hmm. so uh, it was just interesting that I'm like he really took his time. And I mean that's a, another thing that Carpenter was never afraid to do is to build the suspense and not rush it. Um, but when you do it right and you keep someone engaged, it doesn't really matter. You don't mind. And so this movie just takes its time building to to. The, the really fatal attacks starting. I mean, it's set up at the beginning that that Christine has power over her 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 car and almost like the surroundings. So that kind of conceit allows it to do allows her to do so many different things. And, and something like it wouldn't be a situation like in the third act that she does something and somebody be like, "Wait, how can it do that?" And you never question that. You never have a, a moment of doubt when it comes to Christine and what she's able to do and affect the surrounding uh, people. And and going back to what you were saying, Jeremy, about the dude's uh, sweater that he's wearing, like, well, man, you know, she was choking, and I, 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 I couldn't let that happen, man. Uh, uh, he, does have a, he does have a beard. He does look very dude-ish. So. Yeah. I mean, this is before he started touring uh, a roadie for Metallica, so it was, it was, he, had, he had time in his hands. <laughs> um, and so 
after the defecation on Christine and the destroying of it, we have this scene between the parents and, like, them trying to be supportive and, like, even though they really like the car, they know it meant a lot to Arnie, and they try, like, well, we'll give you money to buy a new car, and he, he he's having none of it. He has no show whatsoever. And to the point where his father says, like, you go in there and you apologize to his mother, your mother, and they get physical. And... It's it terrifies his father because he that Arnie's changing to such a, a radically different person than how he started out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean this is uh, uh, you know kudos to Keith Gordon because I think he he does he does a really good job in this movie. Uh, you know, even if parts of his character I feel rushed. Uh, in some scenes, like we talked about, uh, his transformation. But, man, when he does transform, I mean, he he sells it. Um, just very uneasy. <clears throat> you know, you never know when he's going to snap. Um, you know, he just, has, he just has that edge about his performance. You know, you can really tell that this is a person who's just, he's just going to snap at any moment if somebody says the wrong thing to him. And, you know, seeing him attack his parents in this scene is just, you know that he is just, He's gone way over the edge, even though you do, at least for me, I do kind of feel for him, you know, because I'm like, well, you know, you wouldn't let him keep the car at the house, you know, and then, you know, now this happens. Now you're going to backpedal and be like, oh, well, you know, we're very sorry about what happened. And, you know, you do feel for him a little bit, but I think it's I think it's telling, though, that even though. In the movie version, we don't get a whole lot of explanation as to what's going on with Arnie. We just assume that it's Christine having an effect on him. Um, you know, in the book, we know that you know, the spirit of Roland Bay is actually possessing Arnie, and he's slowly transforming into into this previous owner of Christine, and he's slowly becoming this, you know, asshole, you know, for all sense of purposes, you know, he's just becoming this jerk. So we, we realize what's happening, but in the movie version, we don't, we don't really get an explanation as to why Arnie is becoming this such a cynical, you know, jerk, you know, and even though it's, even though it's a little bit, you know, irritating that we don't get that explanation, you know, with the way Keith Gordon performs the scenes and stuff, it's just I don't I don't really mind it because it's just so well done. You know, and I I love all the scenes with him uh, just being angry, and it's just it's just a great performance. Yeah, I'm I'm with you completely. I think that he is the MVP, and I think he's the reason the movie works so well. Is he gives such a great performance? He's so. Uh, He's so sympathetic and he is so vulnerable when you meet him. And then to see that shift, it takes a heck of an actor to pull that shift off. Um, And then you're right. You have this residual sympathy for him, you know, because some of the stuff that's going down isn't his fault. And so you feel bad for him at the same time. He's not reacting in the best way. But because Carpenter allows you to get invested in him at the beginning as as meek, uh, Arnie, uh, it allows you to carry that investment forward once he becomes a lot less sympathetic. And I think that Keith Gordon, um, he's great in this. I, I, I think that he really, uh, like I said, carries most of the movie on his back and, uh, and the performance really is really great throughout. And to your point about what's happening to him, I don't want to know like much like I'm okay with Christine is just evil and it just is same thing. Like you, you watch it and you get it. You go, Oh yeah, well 
he's fallen in love with Christine and now he's possessed by that and he's not the person he once was and he's changing and he's changing for the worse and this evil has started to make its way into him. That's all I need. I don't need to know he's possessed by the previous owner. Well, and I, I, I think that they allude to it a little bit earlier with LeBay's brother where he says, you know, where he's talking to Dennis, he talks about how his brother was like, you know, you know, he didn't give a shit about anything in his life except for Christine. You know, he just, you know, his daughter got killed in the car and he just, you know, hopped in Christine and went driving down the road without a care in the world, you know, except for Christine. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I, I think that's probably about as far as we get where we're like, OK, well, he's he's starting to act like the guy that previously in this car. So it's it must be some kind of some kind of curse or something, whoever owns this car, you know, it's, it's something happens to them and they just become this type of person. Well, and Christine is, as we find out is like the ultimate jealous girlfriend. <laughs> like if, if you're with Christine, you, there is, there can't be room in your life for anyone else. Otherwise Christine has taken them out. So exactly. I feel like I've dated Christine once or twice before. Not thinking about <laughs> it. Um, so we have Arnie and like you were saying before, like his transformation and it's, it's, it's so fascinating to watch him like go from sympathetic and there is a dark side to him and it's, and like the losing of the glasses and his eyes has become bulgier and his more, and his outfits become more fifties based. And I know like on the, the behind the scenes uh, documentary they're talking about, or Bill Phillips is talking about, they changed it for because of like uh, LeBay kind of influencing him and sort of possessing him. That we saw in the book, we saw a decrepit and de- a rotting version of Bay like riding in the car with them. And the reason why they changed it is because to differentiate from American World from London, where we saw mm-hmm. a character that was that was slowly decaying before the main character and constantly would pop up and to give him advice and try and influence his way of going about himself. And I think it's a really smart way to just make about the car 100%. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, you know, I, I love that Carpenter did more of the ambiguous approach to it and just kind of streamlined it. Um, you know, I, I love the book. I love those scenes where, you know, the corpse of LeBay is driving or riding shotgun with Arnie as he's driving around in Christine and just, you know, talking to him. It's, very creepy and unsettling. But again, like I mentioned, you know, in 83, I mean, especially with the budget that this movie was working on, I, you know, I, I don't know that it would have been the right approach to take with the story. And I think it was just brilliant that they decided to, you know, let's just cut that out and let's, let's make Christine the center of attention in terms of a protagonists for the movie i think it's it's because that was one of the things that surprised me when i did finally read the book was you know yeah christine is the protagonist but she's kind of a side character to her own book because the spirit of roland bay is kind of the the creepiest factor in the book uh whereas in the movie christine is she's the center of attention and uh that's that's the reason i love the movie so much And afterwards, um, that Arnie's trying to rebuild Christine, and then he gets a little bit of a showing that um, that Christine can rebuild herself, and then Arnie steps out in front of her and says, famously, show me. 
And then we cut to that behind the shot of him in the foreground and, and Christine in the background and her headlights turn on and there's a huge lens flare going across the, the frame. And then we slowly see Christine rebuild herself. And how they did that is that kind of like uh, they used hydraulics to pull the car in and even not, they didn't have to use like reverse photography. They didn't use like a reverse magazine on the camera. They literally just turned the camera upside down because the kit, the film would run uh, vertically from the top of the magazine through the camera and then back out to the back end of the magazine where it would be stored to be developed later on. And so like you weren't doing any optical effects. So it was everything was pristine and clean when doing those effects. And then it goes off to kill Moochie. And I find those two, these two sequences to be amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, first off, um, the whole scene with her regenerating herself is just, for my money, that's just if you want to see movie magic at its at its best. I mean, that is, you know, this movie came out in '83, and I can watch that movie today, and it's it still looks phenomenal the way they pulled that off. And it, it's just I am another... so I am so with you. Like I <laughs> I agree 110. percent I I watch that as a 35 year old movie, and I'm like, it looks amazing. It looks real. I buy it. I still don't quite know how they did it. It's so impressive. Well, and it's I think it's a perfect example of you know because even today we're we're so numb to CGI effects because that just seems to be what everybody uses. Uh, you know, a lot of it's because of budgets and things like that. It's just a lot easier to do. But this is an example of where, you know, I think CGI has its place today in terms of world building, you know, especially with us with superhero genre. You know, CGI is amazing to be able to bring these worlds and characters to life. But a movie like this, if it was made today, would still get the CGI treatment. And this is an, this is an example of using practical effects just it just makes so much more sense and it holds up so well that it just, it just works. It, it, it can't express it enough. Just how, how great it looks the way they did this. And, you know, I, I'm glad that this movie exists, you know, from back then, because like I said, if we would have got a version of this today, it would, it would definitely not be uh, what we got in this film. And, um, the other thing about this scene that always stands out to me is this is where Carpenter's score really starts to shine through. Uh, you know, as soon as those headlights turn on, you just start getting that Carpenter score creeping in and it's just goes full bore as Christine starts putting herself back together. Um, you know, the, and the whole, the whole death scene with Moochie is one of my favorite scenes of the movie because I love the whole thing where he's walking and you see Christine kind of often, you know, off to the side parked and you hear that, that just classic rock and roll song, you know, kick on. And, you know, as soon as her headlights come on, the Carpenter score kicks back in and it's just, it's, a. I love the combination of the rock and roll music with Carpenter score in this movie. It just, he does it so well putting them together. It just, it works on so many levels for me. Yeah, the score is amazing. And you're right. He really holds back on it for the first half of the movie. Mm-hmm. And and he really then starts to use it and lean into it once the sequence happens. It's a, you know, this is that hour mark where the whole movie shifts. It shifts into overdrive, if you will. Um, and 
that's really displayed in the in the music here and it's one of Carp- some of carpenter's great score work it's still unmistakably carpenter you know with the bass and the synth mm-hmm. and the, the pulsing propulsion and uh but uh yeah like when he really uh kicks it off both in the the transformation and then you know the death of Muchi, which i i think yeah these two scenes probably the best part of the movie like just this great centerpiece of the film where everything changes um and the music's a huge part of that and it's it's interesting because like you're saying, like it's more rock and roll based um, music wise for the first half, and the second half becomes less and less so unless it's coming from Christine herself. And and I love that, like it, it, it makes like with the death of Muchi, I feel like it's it's terrifying because it, there's always the paranoia. I feel like you, if you're the fight or flight kind of attitude you have, and you're trying to escape something, it, it feels like a nightmare where you you're trying your damnedest and like. Christine could kill him like that. But no. She takes her time. She wears him down and gives him that false sense of hope when he gets in that little nook of a like a, a um deliver like a bay for a truck and that she is too wide to get down and he thinks he's safe. And Christine's like, no, and she crushes the, the front end of herself just to get to him. That I think that's a mark of good villain that like, no, I'm willing to hurt myself in order to get you, and I think that's terrifying oh definitely and you know i i love that scene where she's going into that bay to get him and you just see the car just start you know crumbling as she's inching her way in there uh again you know they did this you know this wasn't you know this wasn't some special effect that they i mean they really did that and you know this is also the first time where we see christine when she's put herself back together uh the windows are blacked out uh, when she starts stalking her prey, if you will. And I, I've read two different reasons for the windows being blacked out. Uh, one of the reasons was so you couldn't see the stunt driver driving the car. So, you know, you would have that impression that Christine's driving herself. Uh, and then the other explanation is um, it's so we as the audience are always wondering if Arnie is behind the wheel of the car when Christine uh, is killing some of these people, or if he is completely out of the know that she's out at night, you know, stalking people. Um, I didn't know if you guys knew that or not. I, I did see that in the in the little trivia section, but I always just assumed that Christine was driving herself. I didn't know it was supposed to be a question, but. Then at the end, when Arnie does come out of the car, it's like, oh, wait, are we now supposed to believe that he was there the whole time for all of these? I don't know. Uh, I know yeah, the, I mean, I, yeah um, go ahead, Tim. No, because I know like in the book, it, that's a big kind of mystery that you don't know if it's, if it's just Christine or it is Arnie driving Christine. And, but like, there are certain moments where like, there's nobody in the car and the car is still driving. I, like kind of like how Buddy gets in the book versus how he gets in the movie. I think he realizes that nobody's in the car. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it's another thing. It's it's kind of less ambiguous, but it does make in a practical sense to kind of hide the stunt driver Terry Leonard from, like make it look like oh this is just a car by itself, and that must have been kind of nerve wracking to drive a car at that speed and try not to hit somebody with tinted windows on. Yeah, I had read that he actually had trouble driving it too because he did have his visibility was was pretty low uh, with how black they they made the windows. 
And it's even compounded even further. It's like the next big uh, scene uh, with Christine, like, because uh, I, I want to kind of go on this train of thought, is that when Christine strikes again to get Buddy and the rest of the goons and chases Buddy's car down and chases him to a, a gas station and Christine drives herself into Buddy's car, killing his friends and blowing up the gas station, igniting her, and Buddy tries to escape on foot vainly as Christine, engulfed in flames, chases him down slowly but surely, and then eventually runs him over. Yeah, I mean, and it's another another great practical effects scene. I mean, just the image of of this Plymouth Fury on fire just driving down the road. Um, I, I'm not sure how exactly they pulled that off in terms of how they made it. Because you can definitely tell it's controlled, but it, it's just amazing that they were able to do it to where this car is on fire, but you can still tell what kind of car it is. Um, you know, the headlights, I believe, are still working. It's just, it's an amazing, it's an iconic scene, you know, if you're a fan of this movie. And just the whole thing of Buddy running down this seamless, this seem, you know, endless highway where there's just it's just like an abyss, like he could run all he wants and he's never going to get anywhere. Uh, it's just the way it shots, just really brilliant. And I love that she just toys with him going down the road because she could kill him at any moment. And uh, you know, then she just speeds up, runs him over, and just leaves him as a flaming corpse on the road. It's it's a great it's a great moment, and it's funny because I was watching a Q and A with Carpenter and the cast. And the actor that played Buddy, uh, he actually talked about this scene when he was reading the script, and he asked Carpenter, like, well, why is Buddy just running down the road? Why doesn't he, you know, run off the street and, you know, kind of, you know, just kind of run off, try to get out of, you know, away from her where she can't follow him? And it was kind of funny because John Carpenter's response was, well, because the movie. It's, that's, that's just what we're doing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> The answer is shut up, buddy. <laughs> Do as you're told. And your feelings on this sequence, uh, Andy? Oh, I think it's great. I mean, how do you top Christine crushing herself to get through an alley uh, to kill one of these hooligans? Is how about you set her on fire and just let her go, let her go ham throughout? And it's yeah, it's it's badass. It's brutal. It's it's a great way to take out our our villain or our secondary villain of Buddy. So no, I dig the hell out of it. I think it's super cool. Great visuals and a really exciting sequence. And yeah, impressive technically again for uh, for especially for 1983 driving that car around completely engulfed in flame. Very well done. And the score, the score is really good in that scene as well. It's just. I mean, if I was going to have, like, a Christine, like, T-shirt, like, I'd want to have the image of Christine on fire on my chest. Like, that's, like, that's the image I want <laughs> to remember from, specifically from this movie. Because that's the one image that always comes to mind when I think of this movie, is when she's on fire chasing down Buddy. And, like, how on the special features, Terry Leonard was talking about, like, yeah, he's wearing this, like, weird flame suit. And he has, like, a helmet on to keep him. And so he's got that on. The car is on fire. He's got an oxygen tank and everything, and so he has to pull out of this this gas station that's on fire and drive away, and then later on has to drive it while the car's on fire and not run over the actor. I mean, it must be 
nerve-wracking to do that, but then again, stunt people are kind of just crazy to begin with, so why would they, <laughs> that's, that's how they got into that business in the first place. Um, but the backtrack is a little bit before the, um, Christine uh, kills these two, or these, uh, these goons, uh, we're introduced to Detective uh, Rudy Junkins, played by Harry Dean Stanton, investigating the murder of Moochie, and I love Harry Dean Stanton and anything he's in, and I really enjoyed it in this one scene, in this interaction he has with Arnie, kind of starting off his friend, but like a, like a true cop just slowly starts to ratchet up the tension, and he's definitely been interrogating him from the very beginning. Uh, yeah, I mean, Harry Dean Stanton, I mean, how can you not love him? You know, a great Carpenter alumni, um... You know, and uh, yeah, I, I love his portrayal of Detective uh, Rudy. Um, you know, and I love that he, he, I love that he makes it out of the movie alive. You know, in the book, he he doesn't, he's not so lucky. But uh, I love the scene. I love the interrogation between him and Arnie. I love the back and forth where he just starts peeling the layers back on Arnie, uh, revealing you know his his bullshit. You know, of not knowing anything about what's going on or the fact that. You know, there's things with Christine that don't even add up to to um, to Rudy Junkins. Uh, you know, like he mentions the paint, uh, not being able to get that paint color anymore. Uh, and Arnie has, you know, kind of a, a reason for, you know, being able to get it, but can't back it up. Um, I always found it interesting with this character in the movie because, you know, in the book, it's 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 detailed more about what his theories are. He's trying to piece this whole thing together. Uh, I would have liked to have seen that more in the movie. I would have liked to have seen, especially with Harry Dean Stanton, because he does a really phenomenal job with what he's given to do. I would have liked to have seen his character given more to do in the movie. And just that whole, you know, trying to figure out, you know, he's he's putting the clues together, but they don't make sense to him. Uh, you know, because the idea of a car being able to put itself back together and all that just obviously doesn't make sense in a logical standpoint. But um, yeah, and I, I I can't help but like the that iconic line that um, that Arnie gives where he when Junkins mentions Moochie um, being happen to be scooped up with shovels, and Arnie says like, "Isn't that what you do with shit? You pick it up with with shovels and." Just just brutal lines, but it's just one that stands out to me for some reason. Yeah, Harry Dean was the coolest. I When he showed up, I was like, oh, I forgot he was in this movie, too, because he shows up pretty late on. Um, but, yeah, it's a great scene between the two of them. I still find myself, like, rooting for Arnie in this moment. Um, it's kind of like a Norman Bates thing where I'm like, okay, I know you're not innocent anymore, but I still like you. Um <laughs> But uh, but yeah, like in uh, his uh, yeah, just the back and forth where uh, Harry Dean knows that there is more happening here. But uh, um, but yeah, I dig it. I mean, I can never get enough of Harry Dean Stanton, whether it be this or Alien, Paris, Texas. Uh, even his cameo in the Avengers, I enjoy him in, um, and I, and it's just so. Funny that like it just like it starts off so cordial and and it slowly starts to become uncomfortable and like you're like you're saying, Andy like yeah we're with Arnie in this situation but like as Arnie becomes more defensive about uh, Junkus's questions you're kind of feeling sort of shifts from one side to the other like all right we know Arnie is not okay and maybe 
the detective should arrest him because it probably would save a lot of people and that he's actually a danger to everybody around him. Yeah, so far it's the people who deserved it. That's <laughs> true. I mean, like, but now we're like, but then we like, because the next person we have to die is Darnell because after um, Christine um, roasts uh, Buddy, she returns to the garage and to rebuild herself, and Darnell's like, wait. Knowing that Arnie works for him at this point and is out on a job for him, and then all of a sudden Christine comes back in in a disarray and goes to investigate, gun in hand, finds that there's nobody in the car, decides to get in the car, and and Christine's not going to have any, and crushes him between by moving up the car seat so much that he crushes his chest against the steering wheel. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, this scene here, I mean, it's, it's, it's really well done. Um, but this is another instance where I think, I think the book does a better job with this. In the movie, it comes off as Christine's just had a, she's had a rough night and she's just not in the mood. So, you know, he gets in her and she's just like, yeah, I'm just not in the mood for this. And (laughs) it pretty much kills him. I mean, I mean, up to this point, yeah, he's been a jerk to Arnie, but, you know, he's, you know, been giving Arnie work and stuff. Um, in the book, it's it's detailed a little more as Arnie starts running drugs for Darnell, and Christine um, is going to have no part of that because it's, you know, obviously taking him away from from her, and, you know, she just gets very jealous of the fact that he's doing all these other things for Darnell. And that's not really... Not really explain too much in the movie i guess you could put that together but um just watching the movie it just feels like he it was just bad timing for him to decide to you know get in christine and you know <laughs> sit in the front seat because she just wasn't in the mood for it that night yeah why would you sit in the front seat <laughs> in the in this car that's like torched to all hell that doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> I just, I mean, it just wasn't the best judgment on his, on his uh, part. I mean, he's not the brightest guy, but yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't even look like it'd be comfortable. Looks like it would be hot as hell. So he's still smoking. I know, right? <laughs> and he's, he's just like, I guess I'll sit down. That's fine. <laughs> I'm sure he has a much comfier chair in his office, but <laughs> maybe Christine was like, you know what? This person slapped the, the brightest tool in the shed, and he's like, no, I'm just gonna cull the herd. I'm just gonna. Take him out. Humanity will be better off without him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he doesn't deserve to die, but... Uh, no. But now, Christine, she's just out of control. There's no stopping her now. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's gotten to the point that Arnie, that Lee um, goes to Dennis and is like, all right, we got to do something about this. And... We have to kill Arnie's car. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I, it's it's such a great moment in the book that I wish it was in the movie where they, Dennis and um, Lee are at inside, they're inside um, Dennis's car, they're in a parking lot, I think it's KFC, and they they go in and they kiss and they pull away and that's when Lee, I think, looks out the, the windshield and Dennis is like, what? He looks out and Arnie is standing there with dinner in hand, staring through the the uh, windshield calls him shitters and jumps to Christine and peels out of there. And that's when they decide, all right, we really have to do this now because of, well, a, a, our, our, our kind of like 
Trist has kind of found out, and that we need to do this for Arnie. And in the movie, it's kind of like, like as friends, they come together and they have to do this for him, and they decide to kill Christine. Well, it, it's interesting you bring that up because if you if you look at the deleted scenes for Christine, they actually shot a scene that was like that. Um, where Lee and, and Dennis are kissing in his parked car, and uh, you see Christine pull up behind him, and Arnie's in it, and he sees him kissing, and he freaks out, and he tries to actually ram uh, Dennis's car. Um, I think it, uh, it, with the way the movie's done, I think it was probably smart to take that out, because I think it would make the Dennis and Lee character seem a little you know, backstabby, you know, in terms of Dennis and Lee having a relationship behind Arnie's back. It it makes you less, you know, you're not going to be rooting for them in a way, you know, you're going to be kind of looking down on them for being, you know, kind of shitty to Arnie, you know, who's supposed to be their friend. Uh, and with the way the movie, the way the, the movie shot and the way they do it, it's, you never question Lee and Dennis, you know, their loyalty to Arnie and trying to help him or, you know, save him at the end. Whereas I think if they left that in, I, I think you would, you'd have a little bit of resentment towards Lee and Dennis. If, if that whole thing was going on. That's a great point. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Cause they, they do. I mean, obviously Dennis and Lee kind of get together, but it's kept, uh, it's kept pretty innocent so that you don't feel like they're doing something on the slide behind Arnie's back. So you can still, you can still root for them. Right, I mean, like, in the book, it, it, I mean, I don't know, I guess because they spend so much time with these characters and there's so much of a rapport between Lee and Dennis. I mean, even though they feel guilty afterwards, and even though, even after the book, like, there's an epilogue where they did date, but it didn't work out, and they went their separate ways, and it's kind of like there's a mm. bittersweetness to the end. Like, that's how I always felt at the end of that book. I always wonder what King was saying out there. Like, yeah, we have, like... We send postcards, and that's about it. And when well, the- s- speaking as a as a King fan, I, I I will not defend King's endings for a lot of his books. Uh, he's <laughs> it's a running joke among King fans that uh, he he tends to fall apart sometimes at the end, and there's a lot of people that don't feel his endings uh, land. So, I mean. Oh, like Scott Snyder. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you said it, Andy. I didn't. <laughs> I, I think Zero Year ended well. I think that, that, that I thought that arc ended but well, but that's me. That's me. Um, <laughs> but like you were saying, Jeremy. Uh, yeah, I mean it's 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 just one of those things. I mean, I, I've been I've been a couple Dark Tower groups and Stephen King groups, and I can't tell you how many times that that joke gets thrown around that <laughs> Stephen King can't stick the landing sometimes in his books. That's that's not to say that all his endings are bad. It's just it is one of those things where you know he does draw these stories out very long, and you do get so invested. And it, it, it sometimes it gets to the point where I think he's built the story up to the point where it's it's hard to end it and actually satisfy the reader with the ending. So that maybe that's what it is. But gotcha. Uh, and so they devise a plan, and I love how Dennis um, 
sets up Arnie by s- scratching Darnell's tonight into Christine's hood with, with a knife. And so they go to Darnell's, and their plan is to destroy Christine. And how they can do it? With an old school bulldozer. And they wait for him. They wait for Arnie to show up. He doesn't seem to be showing up. And then they, um, Lee gets out. I think to use the bathroom. And that's when we find that that Christine's been hiding in junk inside Darnell's uh, garage the entire time, and attacks. And Lee's out in the open and can't get back in the bulldozer because Christine will not let her. And in the pursuit of trying to get Lee, um, Arnie is thrown through the windshield as the car crashes into Darnell's office and. In, and Arnie is impaled by a piece of glass, and that's what kills him. And he has one final moment with Christine before he dies. And it's the last little, it's kind of like a, it's almost a sweet moment between the two of them before he dies. I don't know how you guys feel about that. It is. It's it's totally tragic, you know, like this guy never deserved this, but he he kind of passed the point of no return. And so he has this just tragic ending with uh with christine so yeah it's just a, a sad moment yeah um i i have that song on my ipod in my itunes library um it's it's one that actually believe it or not it gets played at car shows a lot when i go because uh, they always have like oldies rock and roll playing and i can't tell you every time that song comes on i i'm always immediately think of this scene and again just perfect perfect song choices for the moments uh and using using this whole you know old time rock and roll as as christine's way of communicating um it just it's it's a great great scene and again kudos to carpenter because i i love arnie's end in the movie much more than i do in the book uh because in the book Arnie is kind of killed off page. Like we don't actually get to, we don't actually get that scene. We don't actually read it. It's, it's described to us by Dennis about what happened. Um, and then the book, it's actually Arnie's dad is in Christine, um, because he, she had killed, uh, Arnie's father earlier in the story and we didn't know. Um, and I, I just I was never satisfied with with the way the book ends with Arnie and his mother dying in a car accident uh, because he's struggling with the spirit of Roland Bay and they end up getting in a car accident. It's just it's not I, I just I wasn't satisfied with it. Um, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it, Tim. But I think Carpenter's, you know, having Arnie in the car. Again, it's it's one of those things where we have to wonder: Was he in the car when he killed Moochie? You know, uh, we don't know. I, I he wasn't in the car obviously when he when Christine killed Buddy, but you know, it is kind of it, it is a nice little twist at the end to know that he was in the car um, that night. And I just I just love that whole scene with the music playing and he touches her emblem on the grill. It's just again, it's it's you know, it's a killer car movie. It's it, it could be hokey, corny, whatever word you want to use, but I'd be lying if I don't get a little emotional when that when that scene happens. It's just so well done. I mean, the the ending of the book, I I never really enjoyed. I mean, like like having Arnie's father like fall out at one point in the midst of the climax, and we find out like oh, and it's we find out and afterwards that that Arnie died with his mother, and I was like. 
Well, that's kind of lame. And then it's it's Roland Bay driving the car as these young shitters as they as they destroy the car. <laughs> um, just like just like an old man telling him to get off his lawn, but just in the most extreme way. And with Arnie's last moment, then he touches the V of like the Plymouth V of it, and like how the headlights um, kind of like almost on a dimmer, just slowly go out, and it seems that Christine's dead afterwards. Lee gets out of the office and walks away, and Christine's like, "No, no, no, I'm not having this." It always freaks me out whenever I watch this moment where it's like we're in. Lee's walking from the background to the foreground, and Christine backs up, and she Lee dies out of the way, and Christine almost hits her, and just hits the suspension, the, the beam that's holding up the wall, and and it just misses the camera too. And I always feel like I, I always get tensed up, like oh, that was so close of hitting somebody, and the she gets back into the bulldozer, and her and. Uh, Dennis run over and pretty much, in Carpenter's words, like, sodomized Christina Death by just, like, mounting the car and destroying her and eventually turning her into a giant cube and seemingly killed her. How do you guys feel about how they finally destroy her with the bulldozer, despite Christine's best efforts to rebuild herself? Well, I mean, again, how iconic is that scene where she has, like, her grills all destroyed It looks like teeth? Um, that's great yeah, that's it's just such a great. nice touch yeah <laughs> um yeah and i i just love it you know i mean every time i watch that scene i'm sitting there thinking to myself like like really you're gonna take your time getting back to the bulldozer like get your ass over there and get in the bulldozer like she's just strolling along you know what's coming you know uh but yeah christine was just mourning the death of arnie for a few minutes so that's why her headlights went dim she was taking a moment um but yeah, again, the practical effects are amazing in this scene. You know, when the bulldozer is tearing her up and you start seeing her trying to rebuild herself again, you know, with the uh, rock and roll will never die song comes on. Uh, it's just just great. It's I can't say enough about the practical effects in this movie. If if anything else, like even if you don't like the movie, you have to give it up for the practical effects in this thing. No doubt about that. Um, yeah, and it's funny when Arnie dies, you almost feel like, oh, it's over. That's it. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and then the whole thing starts back up again, and you still have to defeat Christine. So yeah, I mean, I think they defeat her the best way they can. Is just you just keep at it <laughs> because uh, you let up. She's gonna just fix herself. So you just keep at it with that um, with the bulldozer. And I have always wondered. Um... Because obviously it's it's a it's a you know jump cut to her being in a junkyard just being made into a cube. Like, what exactly did they do that night? Did they just kind of flatten her out and just keep the bulldozer parked on her until they got it out to the gr- out to the junkyard to be <laughs> squashed I, even more? <laughs> I don't know. That's an excellent <laughs> question. Uh, that's a that's a small plot hole. I I do wonder how they kept her from rebuilding herself until they got her in the compactor. Well, and I also wondered like, and this is not as big a deal, but like, so Arnie parks the car at Darnell's. Does he walk to and from Darnell's? Cause it seemed like it was far away because Dennis drove in sometimes. So I was just trying to figure that out. Not that it really matters, but I was just like, what is he doing? I know he did take Darnell's car a lot when he would run errands, but yeah, I don't know how he would get there you know, just heading over there for any reason. 
unless he was mm-hmm. taking the bus or something, maybe. Yeah. I'm sure Christine felt uncomfortable if he had to hitchhike back to his house. <laughs> um, and so, what did you, what did you, what did you think? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's that great gag at the end too, where the guy's coming around the corner with the boombox with the music. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a great one. Um, what did you think about the climax, Tim? Uh, I actually really enjoyed it, and it's kind of like I always think of. Like this car that needs to be destroyed. I always think of Spielberg's duel and how that truck is destroyed at the end as that goes off the cliff and it kind of it's mashed up as it it's rolls down the hill and then how this is turned into a cube. And it's so funny that I never noticed this until Andy, you pointed out to me when we did our top 15 horror movies that every Carpenter film ends on a cliffhanger. And this one yeah. does it does the same thing. Is it that it seems like Carpenter does not like endings. He does not like an ending. <laughs> he he always keeps it dangling. Exactly, and then that, how it like the the grill starts to look like it's going to rebuild itself, and then it cuts into uh, Bad's the Bone again, and goes right into the credits. And like, of course, this it, it, you could argue, oh, they left it open for a sequel, which never happened. I mean, the movie did okay box office. It was made for under ten million and made twenty one at the U.S. box office, so it didn't set the world on fire, but it was a success to an extent. And it's just gone on to become a cult film. I just wonder if, like, like because there's a one of my um, sister's friends, like he. He doesn't like endings either. Like he'll he'll stop reading a book at the last chapter, and he'll won't watch the final episode of a TV show because he does not like endings. I wonder if Carpenter's the same way with uh, movies and TV shows. Uh, per perhaps, but I don't think Carpenter ever. I don't think he was ever trying to set it up for a sequel. So much as I just think that he likes. I mean, I, I mean it. it I've never heard him talk about it. I'd love to ask him, but it's, you know, like in life, nothing, nothing truly ends. Right. It's just, uh, isn't that from the watch for, isn't that from Watchmen? Nothing ever truly ends. Um, I mean, evil never really dies, you know? So, so yeah, like, like Carpenter always just likes to leave the audience hanging. And, uh, I don't think this was a, a shameless setup for a sequel. It was just his style, because if you think about it, of all the times he's done it, the only one that really did get picked up was Halloween. And that was, under duress he didn't want to so mm-hmm. no um and your feelings about that jeremy about carpenter ending the movie the way he did or yeah and how his most of his movies don't end with like a, a solid conclusion that things end ambiguously uh i mean it's it's just another reason why i hold him in such high regard in terms of directors i just you know it it I guess you could say it's predictable if you're a Carpenter fan to expect that, but at the same time, it's still unpredictable because a lot of a lot of stories don't go that direction, and I I like that that's the approach that he does. I don't I don't need a solid conclusion or a satisfying conclusion of the the bad guy meeting his end or you know however you want to phrase it. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I I, I love Halloween so much. Um, it's a film that stands on its own, even if it leaves itself open for an, another one. You know, it's it's one of those things. I mean, and King is no stranger to that as well. I mean, most of his books, you know, 
don't have that solid conclusion either. It, sometimes they are left ambiguous um, to where, you know, evil evil doesn't ever truly die. Uh, it may be defeated for the moment, but it, it never truly goes away. Um, and that's something, you know, especially with one of his big stories with it. I mean, it's the same way. I mean, at the end of the at the end of the book, it's it's presumed that that Pennywise is no more, but it's it's also alluded to that maybe he is still around. And if you follow along with King's books, there are clues that that he is still around uh, in later books. But um, I, I like that approach. I, I like that Carpenter does that. I'm I'm a big fan of it. As am I, because it makes his movies very interesting and kind of leads you to have questions of like things that were not didn't, didn't get sequels like where could they have gone and how much further can that story go i mean of course we have the famous halloween franchise that be, halloween became a franchise and then we have other movies that became ongoing comic books i mean like big trouble in little china for example and then i mean then we have escape from la and just just curious well, if okay. i go on well, and I was I was going to say after you were saying it, it reminds me. I, I think it's great for the audience because it leads us as the audience to be able to to write our own story, you know, or make our own conclusion to it. You know, I the fact that the end of Halloween, Michael Myers, you know that Michael Myers is still out there. You know, it's it leaves you to start creating things in your head. You know, next chapters or things like that. It's it, the the ambiguousness of it is. I it's just. I think it's a great thing for the audience to be able to sit there and start creating things in their own mind about where the story could go from there. I agree. Um, and so we start to wrap this up here. Um, where does this rank for you as a Stephen King adaptation and then as a Carpenter movie overall? Um, so in terms of Carpenter, this is my second favorite Carpenter movie of all time. It's it sits right behind Halloween. Um, I will never argue with anybody who says it's not one of Carpenter's better movies. Um, you know, obviously the thing is amazing. Um, the way it sits on my list is based solely on my my just love for the story and the movie. Um, so I'm a little biased towards it. Uh, it's just a movie that I just, I enjoy so much. And the fact that it's a John Carpenter movie is just a cherry on top. Um, in terms of Stephen King adaptations, um, it's, it's definitely up there. Uh, but the fact that the, that it does, it does streamline the story a lot, uh, from what King wrote. Um, I would say it's not a very, it's not a faithful adaptation because it does Carpenter does kind of change the narrative um, of of the evil and the villain. Um, but that being said, you know it's John Carpenter's Christine. It's not Stephen King's Christine. So I love the fact that I have two versions of the same story from two different uh, masters of horror uh, and their their takes on the same story. It's it's two sides of the same coin in my opinion. And I love the fact that I have both versions. Um, but if I had, if somebody put a gun to my head and made me choose, I would say John Carpenter's Christine is sits above Stephen King's version. I think Carpenter, like most of the things he does, he he's does a great job of elevating 
things. And it's unfortunate that this is the only Stephen King adaptation that he did because I know he originally was going to do the Firestarter one, but he got kind of kicked off that project, which is why he took this one. Um, but I, I would love to see him uh, revisit Stephen King. I don't know if it'll ever happen, but um, I would love to see it happen. And and this one for me, you know, it came out in 83. The book came out in 83 and the movie came out in 83. They started making this movie before the book was even published. So, um, and the other reason it's it's kind of a cool thing is this book and movie came out the same year I was born. So, so it's it's kind of, it holds a special place in my heart. So, yeah. And Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> Just making sure you were done. I didn't know if it was my turn. I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt anybody. Um, I mean, I, I like I said at the beginning, I can't really speak to it as a book. I can just speak to it as a movie. But uh, for a movie, I think it's it remains really darn good, and it really holds up surprisingly well. You know, we talked about the effects. They, the effects look great, and uh, they continue to impress me. The music is great, the character work is great. Um, one thing I forgot to mention, though, is I, I, you know, we we sang the praises of Keith Gordon, who really gives a great performance in this. I think uh, John Stockwell as Dennis, eh, he's, uh, he's a bit yeah. of a block of wood, you know. Like, <laughs> he's not terrible, but I can see why he didn't become a big star. Um, What's well, interesting know. that uh, I think I read that um, Kevin Bacon was originally going to be cast as Dennis, but he turned it down to do Footloose, so. There's yeah. something there's something to mull over a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So um I mean he's he's okay. I don't want to be mean, but he's not he's not great. He's a bit he's a little boring, he's a little flat. But aside from that, you know, I think an amazing supporting cast. Um and just John Carpenter doing what he does best. And this was John Carpenter in his prime, you know, this was a year after the thing. This is when John Carpenter was just churning out just great movies one after another. And uh, uh I think it it continues to hold up. Um for a movie about a killer car, which I said in premise sounds goofy as all hell, Carpenter makes it work, and I'm really glad that I got a chance to revisit it because of this, because uh, it just makes me appreciate it that much more. Nice. Um, for me, this may be my favorite Stephen King adaptation. I'm not sure. Um, and it's funny because I remember when I was finished reading this book, I was actually at work, and it got so dead. Like, the last half an hour, I was like, I'm just going to sit down and start reading this. And nobody was going to give me crap for it. And a coworker came up and touched my shoulder when I was near the last few pages. I actually did jump because I was startled so much. And that's why I was like, I really sealed the deal. Like, oh, we have to talk about this. And how much I enjoy the movie and the book is just two separate things. And for me, as a Carpenter fan, I think this is probably in my top five. Halloween will still always be my favorite. And the thing is number two, but I mean, like this can go between like, all right, they live or escape from New York or even assault on Precinct 13. It's something that I really enjoy. And it's something that I noticed on this viewing with Carpenter is that Carpenter like will is known for a lot of static shots. And like, if he's going to move, it's going to be moved with a very specific purpose for this movie. Like he did definitely move the camera a lot more often than he usually does. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And the fact that he, this is not a passion project for him, this is a work for hire, because the thing was such a critical and financial failure the year previously that he needed a job. 
and he jumped into this and he made a movie that's so lasting that we're still talking about to this day. I think this speaks volumes at his, his creative output and what he could do when he was firing on all cylinders. Yeah, and I, I guess, was I supposed to say where this ranked in my Stephen King adaptations? Because I... <laughs> I didn't yeah, say I, that. I just realized I didn't I in my long rant I didn't even mention that. <laughs> I just basically said I like the movie. But um <laughs> I I don't know. I Jeremy, I'd love to hear what you think about this because in my mind there are quite a few good Stephen King adaptations, but there aren't a lot of great ones. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? I, that's that's fair. Yeah. Because like I, I can think of some that I, I think are good, but like I mean, I think last year's it was great. Um Misery is great, right? Um, I, I feel like, you know, if, if you're looking at, you know, if you're looking for great movies, uh, I would say probably Frank Darabont and Rob Reiner were probably the two directors that cracked the code. Oh, yeah. yeah I forget you that know. Stand By Me. I forget about Stand By Me because it's not scary. Um, um, you know, it's Shawshank. Shawshank, uh, yeah. Mile, The Mist. Uh, I guess okay. if you're going to look at horror, I would say Frank Darabont probably did the best with The Mist. Um, yeah. That's probably, that's probably the high mark. Um, I mean, I guess for me, if uh, I, I, I would say this is probably my favorite Stephen King adaptation, just for all the reasons I've mentioned already. It's just, it's a John Carpenter, Stephen King adaptation, and that gives it bonus points for me. And just all the other reasons I mentioned, I just, I just love this movie so much. And even though it's not a very faithful adaptation, I just, I forgive all that because I loved all the changes that Carpenter made and it just, it stands above the rest for me. And it's a completely fanboy bias opinion. I'm not going to argue that it's it's a better movie than The Green Mile or Shawshank Redemption, but in terms of my favorites, I would probably say Christine's probably my favorite. Well, and I think that's just it is. I mean, th- thank you. You just reminded me of a bunch of other great ones. So <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you chimed in because otherwise I'd have looked like an idiot. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, I mean, this has got to be one of my favorites because it's it's you're not just working with King's source material. You're all you've also got John Carpenter in his prime to elevate the material. And it makes for an incredibly rewatchable and incredibly scary and incredibly fun and entertaining movie. So those two people at the height of their powers in 1983 just crafted something that that truly stands the test of time. Yeah, I don't think I can add any more to that. And so, um, Jeremy, if you want people to follow you on social media and your show, where can they find you? Uh, You can find me over at Dark Tower Radio. Uh, It's an all Stephen King podcast. Uh, So if you want to hear me talk more about Stephen King adaptations or books, uh, comics, uh, TV miniseries. I mean, you know, we're kind of in a new renaissance of King. So there's not only are there tons to talk about from his previous years, but we got all this new stuff coming out now. So it's very exciting if you're a King fan. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter just by searching Dark Tower Radio. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if, if you're listening to this, obviously you're probably a Stephen King fan. So come over and check out my podcast if you're into that. So. I'm so into that, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to get you on there, Andy, again. And well, because like I... you did Christine like two years ago before we were I friends. Know. 
That was like that was at the top of my list when I started that podcast. I was like, I got to do a Christine episode. I probably did it. I probably shot it out a little early, but I just couldn't wait to talk about it. So yeah, I, I am not like a King super fan. I mean, I think he's awesome, but like I don't know Stephen King like you do. But I am a John Carpenter super fan. So if there was one to get to talk about, thank God Tim Rooney's around to let us talk about it on his show. Since well, you, I, since you. Blew your load way too early, on Christine. <laughs> well, I haven't done Brian De Palma's carry yet, so I don't know oh, if you're a carry fan. Yeah, that's a good one. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's good. Yeah. I need the Blu-ray of that because I think it's—I heard it's gorgeous looking. Yeah, it's Brian De Palma. I mean, I I love the way his movies look anyway. I agree. And Andy, if we want people to follow you on social media and the shows that you do, where can they find you? Sure. Uh, if you want to follow just me on social media, independent of any shows, um, it's just my name on face, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's just Andy DiGenova, A-N-D-Y-D-I-G-E-N-O-V-A. Um, but you'll more often find me talking about Batman at Holy Batcast. So you can find Holy Batcast wherever you find your podcasts and follow that show on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, Holy Batcast. And YouTube. Everywhere. Nice. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney 2, my Instagram at TRooney1012, my YouTube page at Through the Lens Productions, where my upcoming short film podcast problems is coming out soon. And there's the other show I'm part of, uh, Please Rewind, the RF4RM Retro Show. And it is, it's a little weird to go from being a fan of the real fan shows and then having Andy, like, you plug the show. Every time you do an episode now, I'm just like, oh, this is this is a bit strange. Uh, it, it was it, I was taking it back the first time I heard it. I was like, I did I did the I didn't I'm not saying I didn't do the Dance of Joy from Perfect Strangers, but it was close to that because I didn't have anybody else around me to help me with it. So, um, and so yeah, you can follow that show. And we we just released our next, latest episode, Goodfellas, and we have a uh, another one in the pipeline, and we have a bunch of one planned for that. And so, uh, fellas, I want to say thank you for taking time and night to talk about uh, John Carpenter's Christine. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, sorry it took so long, but uh, <laughs> I, I probably will have you guys back on again soon. I will not make you wait as long as we did last time, I promise you that. Well, we have another Creep Show movie to cover on my podcast, Tim. That is true, and I do have to get to that. <laughs> but... With that said, I I will say I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of Christine, and we'll talk to you soon.